Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Strange Pathways. I am your host, Scott Mort. Before we get started, huge thanks to everybody going over to the TikTok page. A lot of the videos have been getting a lot of plays. Really happy to see that. If you're not a fan of TikTok or Instagram, we're on both as Strange Pathways podcast. I am uploading those shorter videos, those one-minute around one minute videos, I'm going to be uploading them to YouTube because I understand not everybody gets into the whole TikTok and Instagram thing. A lot of us are still old school. It's weird to call YouTube old school, but I guess I am that age now. It's, it's, (laughs) it's a little disheartening. I'm 48 years old. I'm 48 years old. It's a little disheartening. The body doesn't work anymore. But the mind, mind is sharper than ever. I hope everyone's had a great week. I've had a really good week. Let's jump right into the tales. Our first tale is going to take us to Marion, Indiana. Sometime in the early 1800s, we have an unnamed Methodist minister. And he's hearing hearing stories from his congregation that there's a tree in the woods along the river that's an entrance to an underground world of little people. Now, he goes to some of the Native Americans that are still living in the area, and he asks them, and they said, yeah, the Pukwudgies live there. Now, for those that don't know, a puckwudgie. It's this little two to three foot tall human-like creature. It's, there are actually a lot of Native American tribes that believe in, in the puckwudgie. Sure, sometimes these Native American tribes have a different name for them. Uh, the Delawares were the ones that called them the puckwudgies. Uh, Miami tribes knew them as the Paisakais. It's it's essentially a name that translates to the little wild men of the forest. Believe it or not, Pukwudgie sightings still occur to this very day. The, the thing that I find truly interesting about Pukwudgies is the story of Moshop. Now, Moshop was this hero of the Wampanoag tribe. He he had a lot of friends. He had a giant frog and a wife named Squanet. He was essentially the Wampanoag version of Batman. He he was he was an absolute unstoppable hero. Moshop fought the Pukwudgies. Now the Pukwudgies, they used to be very friendly towards humans. The problem was that these Pukwudgies, even though they were trying to be helpful, everything that they helped with ended disastrously. Moshop would step in, clean up the mess, and 
these little puckwudgies, they got so frustrated with everything that they they went, okay, if we can't help them, we're just gonna we're gonna do the opposite. We're gonna make their lives miserable instead. And then they started creating real havoc. Moshop, who remember is their superhero. He gathered all the puckwudgies up into a leather bag. He shook this leather bag really, really violently until all the puckwudgies inside were dazed. And then Moshop threw the leather bag as far away as he could, scattering them all over New England. And then Moshop went to rest. Many of the puckwudgies died. But some of them survived. They were angry. They wanted revenge. They made their way back to Massachusetts where Moshop was. And they raised hell. Instead of being just tricksters, the Puckwudgies began to slaughter the Wampanoag people. They burned their villages, kidnapped their children. Moshop doesn't want to deal with this anymore. Moshop sends his five sons to fix the problems. Now his five sons, they, they head into the woods. They're going to get these Puckwudgies. The Puckwudgies entice the five sons deep into the tall grass. But the thing was, Moshop was a giant. His five sons were giants. These tiny little two or three foot creatures, these Puckwudgies, they are invisible because of the tall grass. They're hidden, they're camouflaged. And Moshop's sons cannot see them. The Puckwudgie shot them with arrows, killing each one of them. The news reaches Moshop, and he goes out for vengeance. The Puckwudgies lure Moshop into the swamp and riddle him with arrows. And Moshop, a god giant, this this tribe's version of Batman dead I've always thought that had that had some sort of credence to it it's whenever you have whenever you have this tribe's superhero being killed by the puckwudgies that that tends that that tends to make me believe that there is some sort of truth behind this story. Do I think Moshop was a fifty foot tall giant? No, I don't. I think you know it's a game of telephone, but I think there was a man who went out to face these creatures who had beaten them time and time again and who was who was fell by them. Why would you have your superhero die? 
it was yeah yeah the minister the minister surely heard some of these tales and he like a lot of you probably believes none of it so he goes he sharpens his axe and he starts to to cut down this huge tree he strikes it once twice three times and a hole opened up at the base of the ground and about 15 maybe 20 of these tiny little humanoid creatures climb out of the hole and they begin to attack the now terrified Methodist minister. These little creatures, maybe they were puckwudgies, maybe they were something else entirely. But these little creatures, they quickly took down the minister and cut his throat with a flint blade. Now, the minister did survive. He had this ugly, jagged cut on his neck. Never again did he make fun of any of the congregation that told stories of seeing little tiny wild men in the woods. Now, a lot of you are listening to this and you're saying to yourselves, come on, this is 1800s. This surely stuff like this isn't happening today. There's a man from Anderson, Indiana. His name is Paul Startsman. He, he believes they're true. Because Paul was born in 1917. He was 10 years old in 1927. And he's, he's hiking along this gravel pit. And he comes face to face with a little man about two feet tall. They were about 10 yards apart, and they looked at each other. The little man had thick, dark blonde hair, a round pinkish face, almost like it's sunburned. The little man is barefoot, and he's wearing this long, light blue gown that comes down to his ankles. Paul, Paul moves to, to go towards this little man. And the little man turns away and moves into the underbrush. And he's, he's telling the story to one of his friends. And his friend goes, yeah, I, 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 saw, I saw that same thing. And the guy goes, what? Paul, Paul says, what? His friend goes, yeah, uh, he was wearing the, the shirt too. I... I kind of thought maybe it was a man's shirt that this puckwudgie had stolen from a clothesline. Now, Paul, Paul Startsman, he, he believes that the, the puckwudgie are a race of short humans, not unlike the pygmies. He believes that they're a race of short humans and that they're still there, that they're, they're undiscovered, maybe living underground in Indiana. It's really easy for us to sit around and say, oh, surely we would have found them by now. 
Maybe. But maybe not. Go back as far as 2017, just five years ago, in Indonesia, uh, a group of trail bike riders, one of them happened to have a camera. They shot footage of what seems to be a tiny human-like entity carrying a spear, running out of the forest, and then running away from it. Now, a lot of people believe that what they captured is a small human. What I, I don't know if it's offensive to say or not, but what would be considered a member of the pygmy tribes. Very small humans. Very real humans, but very small humans. Just because we don't see it every day doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I've never seen Antarctica. I believe it's there. Other people have seen it. So who's to say? Who's to say there isn't a race of small human or human-like creatures living in underground Indiana? Paul Startsman believes that. And I know in the 1800s, there was a Methodist minister who really believed it. Our next tale is going to take us back to March of 1962, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Now, just, just off the coast of Fort Walton Beach, there is, there is a shipwreck. The USS Massachusetts. It's big. It's 350 feet long, 70 feet wide. Built in 1896. In 1921, the vessel was sunk in a training exercise. It's, it's still partially visible from the surface, so it's, it's easy to see. Five teenagers that day in March... 1962, decide that they're going to get on a raft and they're going to go out and explore this. Now, there is 16-year-old Brian McCleary, uh, 16-year-old Eric Rule, 14-year-old Bradford Rice, 16-year-old Warren Felly, and 17-year-old Larry Stewart Bill. They, they were as safe as they could be. They checked the weather and... And they had a seven-foot Air Force life raft. They have a drift anchor. Uh, they have pockets for provisions on the raft. They have oars. The water, though, it's kind of cold. They said the water was ice cold. Now, they decide that they're going to take turns paddling to help save their energy for exploring this shipwreck. But on their trip out to the wreck... A storm rolls in. The wind, the waves, they're pushing the raft out to sea. It's at this point that Eric, Warren, and Brian, they jump into the water. And they're going to try to push the raft from behind. But the wind is too strong. 
the the waves are too strong. They get back into the boat because they're not making any progress, and the waves are getting higher and higher. And these five boys have to hold on very tight to the sides of the boat. It's their only chance. They they had tried to wave down help from other boats, but oddly enough, these boats, they just wave back. They think the boys are out there having fun. They're, the people on, on these other vessels are completely ignorant to the trouble that the boys are in. The storm... It finally lets up. But now, now they have a second problem. They have this thick fog. They can only see about 25 feet. And then the water, the water around them becomes warm. And they smell it. They smell rotting fish. It's, it's filling the air. And that's when this thing pops out of the water. They said it looked like a telephone pole with a bulb on the top, bent in the middle. And then it dives under the water, making a high-pitched whine. Rightfully so. The boys boys panic. They jump into the water. And in the water... There are patches of brown, crusty slime on the surface. They decide our best bet is to head for the shipwreck. But they're tired. They're cramping. They're in the water, swimming for about 30 seconds. Warren cries out, Hey, help me! Help me! It's got brat! And then... He vanishes beneath the surface. Brian, Larry, and Eric, they keep swimming. They don't see Warren, and they don't see Brad. Larry suddenly vanishes. Eric and Brian, they're searching for him, and they're searching. But it's, it's so dark out now, they can't see him. Eric... Eric is so tired and just exhausted. He has to hold on to Brian to stay afloat. They're out there for a couple of hours, the two boys. Lightning flashes. And surprisingly, Brian is able to make out the wreck of the USS Massachusetts. He sees the outline in the lightning flash and he starts to frantically swim towards it. A wave hits, and Eric and Brian are separated, but they're they're renewed by hope. They both power on towards that wreckage. And then the thing appears, the monster, this long telephone pole creature. It comes out of the water one more time and it dives on top of Eric and it drags him under the water. Brian screams. He, he swims past the ship, but 
he can't remember anything else after this. The next thing Brian remembers is washing up on a beach. He said he finds a tower of some sort. He climbs up the tower, sleeps on the floor. And in the morning, he climbs down. But the trauma of it all, his legs fail him. And he falls to the beach and crawls. And some passerbys end up finding him. They take him to the hospital. The police come in. And he tells them the story. And the police tell him, keep quiet about this. Don't tell anybody. Nothing good is going to come of this. We don't think we don't think you went out there and killed anybody. So just keep your mouth shut. Brian. Brian has a mental breakdown. He's mentally he's out of commission for three months. Brian ended up retelling his account of events to Fate magazine in 1965. He never went back on his story, but he never really talked much about it either. Some accounts have Brian living a somewhat normal life. Some accounts have Brian being addicted to drugs and alcohol afterwards. Some accounts have him passing away in 2016, some in 2017. Their raft was eventually found. It was found about 10 miles from where Brian came out of the water. It's... It's really sad to say that the bodies of Eric Rohl, Warren Solly, and Larry Stewart Bill were never recovered. Uh, about a week after the accident, though, Brad Rice, his body was found. Brian was the one who identified it. If you head over to the Strange Pathways Facebook page and our Twitter I wasn't able to get Strange Pathways on Twitter. It's Pathways Strange on Twitter. They'll, there will be a link to it in, in the show notes below. But I'm going to have, I'm going to have a sketch. It's actually Brian's sketch of the creature that attacked them. It's, it's odd to say this about a creature that killed so many people, but, Honestly, it's kind of cute. Cute does not mean benevolent. Remember that. Camels are kind of cute. They're kind of vicious, too. Lions and tigers. Bears. They're all kind of cute. It doesn't mean that they won't kill you. I don't do true crime a lot. I I was once a co-host on a true crime podcast. Strangely enough, I was the guy making the jokes. It was it started out being very much like a a clone of last podcast on the left. 
and I was supposed to be like the Henry Zabrowski type character, kind of the rude, crude person making the jokes. I got to tell you, talking about true crime, it got to me. It really got to me. And I remember quitting that podcast. I just kind of stood up one day and said, this isn't fun anymore. This, I, I have terrible fun with this. I, I learned so much new stuff just through my research. And the only thing that I learned really from my experience with the other podcast was that people are horrible and they've always been horrible and they probably will continue to be horrible. So I don't do true crime very often. It, it tends to mess with my, my psyche. But I did, I did hear this tale earlier in the week and it did fascinate me. I think, I think two of the things that fascinated me, number one, it was, the, the killer was never caught, but what the killer presented themselves to be was pretty out there. And number two, this seemed so similar to Son of Sam it seems so similar to the Zodiac Killer that I thought it deserved a little bit of attention. We're going to go back to June 11th, 1930, Queens, New York. Now, jo Joseph Mozinski, he's, he's 39 years old, and he, he tells his wife that he's going to go run a few errands. He's, he's the owner of a small grocery store. And he's pretty, pretty blasé on the surface. He tells his wife he loves her. He leaves. He, he gets in his sedan and he picks up his 19-year-old mistress, Catherine May. And then he drives to a lover's lane close to Whitestone in College Park. Now, you're, you're kind of thinking, okay, that's creepy. 39 and 19, it gets creepier. Their affair had been going on for two years. She was 17 when she started her little tryst with him. It, it They didn't think they would be found. I mean, Mozinski's wife had two children to look after. She wouldn't be looking for him. Why, why would anyone find them? But someone did. A short, slender man approached the car and shot Mozinski. May was then ordered out of the car. And I hate to use this term sexually assaulted some reports of this are going to say that he didn't lay a hand on her but 
it was something kept out of the newspapers. Remember, we're talking 1930. You don't say that kind of thing in the newspapers at that time. They just leave that out. The killer then opens up May's purse, removes a few letters, and burns them. The killer then takes takes May to a trolley. He hands her a letter and says, do not open this until tomorrow. The police started questioning Miss May. They questioned her for three days. And they were a little suspicious. A lot of the policemen actually thought that May might have been the killer. She gave them a lot of different stories. She tried to implicate this Italian gangster, Albert Lombardo. And the police said, we've never heard of him. We don't think he exists. And then Catherine May then later goes, yeah, that's not true. So you can see why the police were suspicious. And really, Joseph Mazinski's death didn't receive any special treatment until this radio mechanic from Brooklyn, Noel Sowley, he was found dead in his coop, shot twice in the left temple. And just like Mazinski, Sally was with a young woman, a Miss Betty Ring, at the time of his death. Betty said that this really thin man with a narrow face and sunken cheeks, he pointed his pistol at Sally and said in a German accent, give me your driver's license. The man looks at the driver's license and then back to Noel and says, you're going to get what Joe got. And he shoots Sowley in the mouth. Sowley goes, you've got the wrong man. He's still able to talk with his, with being shot in the mouth. So, the assailant walks around, looks at the license plate, and goes, no, I don't think so. Shoots him again in the head, kills him. He's, he's going to assault Betty Ring in the same way that he assaulted Miss May. But, she reaches in and she's like kind of praying she's holding on to a crucifix that's on a chain around her neck and this stops him this stops him from assaulting her but he does the same thing he gives her a slip of paper and then sits down on the bus with her and escorts her home 
Not that Catherine May has a lot of credibility at this point, but Betty Ring's description of the murderer matches Catherine's. And then there's a clue that links the two deaths. There's a newspaper clipping found in Sowley's pocket. This, this clipping, it told of Moisinski's death. And somebody had written, here's how, on the margin. Ballistic tests later showed that the bullets used on Joseph Mozinski and Noel Sowley shot from the same gun. There's a killer on the loose. And the police immediately mobilize. There's a 19-day search, 2,000 uniformed patrolmen, 425 specialized units. Patrolmen are guarding roads, lovers' lanes, others are combing the area. And a lot of a lot of people believe that this might be somebody who's escaping from the state hospital for the insane at Creedmoor. But nobody's missing there. The note that Catherine May had, all that was on it was in, in red ink, Joseph Mozinski, 3X3-X-097. Letters began to arrive at newspapers. One letter wrote, Kindly print this letter in your paper for Mazinski's friends. CC-NY. ADCM-Y16A. DQR-PA. 241-PM6 Queens. By doing this, you may save their lives. We do not want any more shooting unless we have to. Three days after Sally is murdered, 3X writes to Joseph Mozinski's brother, John, living in Philadelphia. Now, 3X orders Mozinski's brother to surrender certain documents by placing them in a newspaper and leaving it by the back entrance to the men's room at Broad Street Station. If, if John doesn't have the letters, then he has to leave word who had them and this these notes these notes are all signed with an inverted v and then an upright v and then 3x while all this is going on the $10,000 a day manhunt continues every single day the police brought in suspect after suspect after suspect, showing them to Betty Ring, to Catherine May, saying, is this the man? Is this the man? And every single day, Catherine May and Betty Ring say, no, no, this isn't. Postal workers are even told, be on the lookout for this man. And 3X remained at large. June 21st, police receive a letter from the man who has become known as 3X. 
Now, according to this letter, 3X claims that he was a former officer in the German army until he joined a secret group, the Red Diamond of Russia. It had supposedly all members of all nationalities and the symbols he sent in his letters were representative of the red diamond. You had like the upright V the, the lower V you put them together, then it would make a diamond. The Mozinski brothers, along with Noel Sowley, were all once members of the Red Diamond. But they were discharged due to treason because they had turned against their secret society. The letter went on to say that they turned their backs on the Red Diamond. They joined up with another unnamed group to blackmail the organization. And they had become involved with drug smuggling. 3X never really mentioned where in the world it happened. But he goes on. He says that these three men stole documents, one military, one political, one commercial. And they had been using these documents for blackmail against the Red Diamond. Once this was forwarded to the Red Diamond Supreme Council in Russia, a dozen agents were called upon to decide who was going to be the agent to retrieve these three documents. The group drew from a deck of cards. 3X was the lucky winner. He had drawn the King of Diamonds. In his own words, he was selected to punish and to inflict death if necessary. 3X says his his job is done. He's not going to murder again. And oddly enough, as far as we know, 3X stayed true to his word. But doesn't this case seem somewhat familiar to you? Doesn't it have a Zodiac killer feel? Doesn't it have a Son of Sam feel? A killer stalking people, making out in a car, sending cryptic letters and codes to newspapers, murdering with a pistol. A lot of individuals are going to say that the three X murders, the whole secret organization, blackmail. They're going to say that that was a fantasy created by whoever three X was that he played out in real life. But let's turn it around. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam killer. He made some interesting claims. After David Berkowitz was in Sullivan Prison, he claimed that he had joined a what he called a satanic cult in the spring of 1975. In 93, he he made these claims known. He he told the press 
that he had killed only three of the Son of Sam victims. Donna Laria, Alexander Esau, and Valentina Siriani. Berkowitz then says other shooters were involved and that he fired the gun only in the first attack and the sixth. He he went on to claim that him and these other cult members were involved in every incident. They planned the events. They, they did early surveillance of the victims. Some would act as lookouts and drivers. Berkowitz then said that I can't tell you their names without putting my family directly at risk. What if? And I'm the first to admit that it's a stretch. But what if this cult that Berkowitz claims he was a part of was in fact the Red Diamond of Russia. What if he and 3X were members of the same cult? It's a stretch, I know. But it would explain why there are so many cases like this, like the 3X case, that seem to mimic over and over and over without people claiming to be 3X themselves. The Zodiac Killer never claimed to be 3X. Berkowitz never claimed to be 3X. Right now, the Red Diamond of Russia could be out there planning its next move. What's their agenda? What's their purpose? How do they target their victims? Maybe it's the same in name only. And maybe it's become twisted from its true purpose. In reality, I suppose any one of us could be victims at any moment if the Red Diamond of Russia still exists. Thank you for joining us again here on Strange Pathways. Please head on over to our TikTok, Strange Pathways Podcast, our Instagram, Strange Pathways Podcast. Head on over to our Twitter account, Pathways Strange. Oh, I wish I could have got Strange Pathways. Please head over to our Facebook page. I'm going to have images that go along with the tales that we've told here today. If you'd like to get in contact with me, our email is strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. Thank you once again for joining us here this week. Take care of yourselves and each other. 